This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Poker Powerfuls. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive from a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. Yeah. And this week, we are getting our second week of reruns showing the Tournament of Champions contestants in their original natural habitat, we should say. <laughs> and it begins with my game four. Sadly, not my game five, which would have featured both of yours truly's. Yours truly's? Mm-hmm. Would that be how you pluralize yours truly? Oh. Or would it be yours is truly? I, I, uh, there's so many, so many options here. I'm not really sure. I think probably it's just yours truly, but I, I don't know. Hmm. It would oh. feature both of us. Yes. I, That's an easier way to say it. I would have loved that. But I loved getting to see Reese and Christine again. Yeah, they were, they were definitely fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, this is is not really like a complaint because it's not a woe is me moment, but obviously winning games is like really, really good and why you go on the show and what you try to do and all that. But the one thing that I missed out on was that I didn't get to really spend time with the other contestants, aside from those couple of hours in the morning where you're all in the green room, because then I was on stage for the whole tape day, Mm -hmm. and even in between, you know, I was you're not allowed to talk to the audience. I was going back back and forth from the from the green room to the stage. So I remember everyone being really cool <laughs> and and like nice people and fun to be around, but then I didn't really get to connect with them in the way that uh the others did. But then again, I had a good reason for it. So mm-hmm. um anyway, that's my long-winded way of saying Reese and Christine were a lot of fun and seem and are, are wonderful people. As are everyone that we that we got to know. Yeah, it was a really special experience. So on Monday, uh, we've already kind of talked about them, but we have Reese Wallace, an editor from Orlando, Florida, who gave a nice uh, shout out to Lin Manuel Miranda and the McElroy brothers with his little great job wave. Uh, Christine O'Donnell, a philanthropic advisor from Elmwood Park, New Jersey. And me, Kyle Jones, a music teacher from Aurora, Colorado, who at that point, my three-day cash winnings were 58800 That's a good total for three days. Yeah, yeah. Little little under the 20000 average that you kind of like, kind of look for in longer streaks, but that happens when <laughs> on your second game, it's a triple stumper in Final Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Uh, and we get the Jeopardy round categories. Let us begin a bit of Britlet, Showboats companies, double E in quotation marks, regional vocabulary, and state songs, where they give you lyrics and you identify the state. So naturally, knowing that I'm introduced as a music teacher, I knew that I had to start with the state songs. Whether I wanted to or not, I Mm -hmm. had to start there. I enjoyed that category. Uh, I could tell. Yes. Um. A little bit about this. I did not know any of these based on songs. I do not know state songs. I'm sure there are some people who do know that piece of trivia, 
I do not know state songs, like as a thing. Yeah, but the clues the clues had like had pointers in them that you didn't need to know the song itself. Yeah, and that's that's the thing about Jeopardy clues is that they seldom write it so that you really must know some truly obscure niche trivia. Um, if they're asking mm-hmm. about something that's on the obscure side, they they make sure there are pointers in there. So you went on a bit of a run, those first few clues, um, identifying the skyline, piercing Providence, the state house dome so rare as the state song of Rhode Island. Obviously, Providence points to Rhode Island. You just need to make that connection. Uh, we had God and his great love and wisdom made the rugged granite state. Uh, so you knew the granite state was New Hampshire. And then I love your old gray missions, love your vineyards stretching far. Um, so if you think about missions and vineyards, you're thinking of California. And at that point, you hit the Daily Double as the fourth pick at the $800 level and made it a true Daily Double with 1200 And then the best moment, uh, the clue was, in its fair western home, may the columbine bloom till our great mountain rivers run dry. And... You knew that was Colorado, because ha, did you know the state song of Colorado? Uh, we actually have two, and uh, no, I did not know this. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if I've ever actually heard this song before, or if I had ever heard that song before. The Rocky Mountain Columbine is our st- state flower. Obviously, the the like the the name Columbine now has uh, like national importance. Mm-hmm. Because of Columbine High School. Yeah. And I, I've got to admit that that is how I knew which specific western state with mountain rivers we uh, we should be thinking about. Is because I knew of the Columbine shooting. I don't know if I would, know of the, would have known of the Columbine as the state flower without that. Yeah. I mean, probably not. Um, yeah. So you, you doubled up to 2,400 with Reese and Christine still at zero. And this is just one of, I, I haven't counted, I haven't gone back and counted, but one of many instances where I got four out of five in a category, because uh, the $1,000 clue was a triple stumper. It's, tell me of that treasure state, story always new, tell of its beauty's grand and its heart so true, and I don't, I didn't know what the treasure state was. Christine guessed what's New Mexico, but it is Montana. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. Um, and you guys played your categories top to bottom right to left for the most part although at the bottom of showboats uh christine took us over to far left to let us begin and so you guys played let us begin top to bottom and then went back to the second column and ran that did that one top to bottom that's right Um, i I like to run a clean game yeah it was a it was a nice neat board i appreciate that yes i did too shout out to uh living in indiana for a few years for knowing rummage sale Mm. Because that's how it's always referred to in that, at least that part of the, that part of the country. Not a yard yard sale, not a garage sale, but a rummage sale. And I, we we were always that was utterly new to us. And every time we saw it, we we're like, "What are you rummaging for? Shouldn't it all be out there? I don't want to go rummaging in your stuff." Hmm. Yeah, I think I think I knew that one because of there's that like there's like an online like quiz thing but i can't remember who put it together where you indicate which regional like what what you call the shoes you wear at gym class what you call carbonated sugary drink what you call a sale where you 
where where you sell items from your home, and then the, and then the quiz identifies with with stunning precision um, what region or regions are your are your home and shape your language. It always pegs me to central Massachusetts and New York. So anyway, I had encountered rummage sale there. Tag sale, we call that. Uh, tag sale, yeah. Where I grew up, yeah. What if you don't have tags on it, though? Uh, it's a tag sale. Maybe a yard What if sale. I don't? But sometimes, but usually a tag sale. What if I don't want to buy your tags? What if I want to buy your yard? <laughs> what if I want to buy your garage? What are we supposed to, to do? have to go to some other region for that, Kyle. I guess. We got a nice moment in the showboats category at the $1,000 clue. The Pacific Princess, exciting and new in 1977. Christine got in and uh, sang, What is the love boat? Mm-hmm. We know that, from us being there, they had to stop taping after that. Or actually, at the next commercial break, they, they had to stop taping, spend some time getting Christine to uh, re Pretend to ring in, right? I uh-huh. think. Yeah, she had to pretend to ring in, give the response, what is the love boat, without singing, in case it was a copyright problem for them to keep her singing in the episode. That was so great. Yeah. Turns out wasn't a wasn't an issue. So yeah. they kept it in, which is really mm-hmm. nice. But yeah, it took a took a, a good amount of time to get the shot of her just ringing in and saying it correctly. Mm-hmm. I'll say the let us begin category. I don't know, a whole category about lettuce, but it worked. Uh, that's why I, I mean, love that's why I love Jeopardy. Yeah. Anything is fair game. Yep. All right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Kyle is leading at 8,800, Christine's at 3,600, and Reese is at 3,200, and we get the double Jeopardy categories, specific general history, mammals, rhyming terms starting with H, stripes on the flag, just for reference, and reinstate songs. It's a callback to the state songs. It is... Uh, did you guys run such a clean? Oh, not not as clean not this time. Not as clean. Yeah. No. No, I tried to. I tried to, but no. Yeah. These jokers just keep jumping around. <laughs> um. Oh, I guess there was just one. There's just one jump, right? Um, yeah. 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 It's otherwise, pretty straightforward. Yeah. We did not do great in the uh, general history category. Mm. Missed, uh, missed three. Missed the top three. That's actually where uh, Reese began. I gave a bad guess in the $400 clue. Don't want to talk about it. Moving on. And then at pick number three, Christine found the second Daily Double. And she wagered 1,000 of her 4,400. Uh, and she gets the clue known by a colorful nickname he got the rank of general of the armies of the u.s in september 1919 she didn't know she took the guess of who is Patton. not a bad guess but also a bit early for Patton. Mm-hmm. uh but no that is blackjack pershing john j blackjack pershing uh, so she lost a thousand there this isn't like an instaget for me the u.s army band is known as pershing's own mm. and i have gone to a conference put on by the U.S. Army Band and, like, listened to their recordings. And for a time, I was looking into being a military musician. So wow. it was pretty firmly on my radar. Plus, Pershing is, like, the commander in World War One. So, mm-hmm. 
smallish wager from her there, I think, communicated that she didn't feel especially confident in the category. And then she moved away from it after that, so probably didn't feel comfortable at all. (laughs) Yeah. So then uh, the third Dilly Double comes up in Stripes on the Flag at the $800 level. Reese finds this one and makes it a true Dilly Double with $3,200. At that point, uh, Christine was at $5,400 and Kyle is at $11,600. And Reese gets the clue. Stripes were added for Vermont and Kentucky. So the Star Spangled Banner that flew over Fort, Fort McHenry had this many. And he correctly responds, what is 15? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good move. Mm-hmm. Smart wager. Yep. Bold. I like that. Bold. Yes, indeed. Uh, I had a brain fart. The next, uh, the next clue, it was the one below it in stripes on the flag. The clue is, it's three times the fun. The flags of these three Baltic states all have three stripes. And I rang in, knowing that I knew the names of these countries, and barreled through Latvia, Lithuania, and then couldn't remember Estonia until time was almost up. I remember feeling really panicked, but watching it, I did not look particularly concerned. Mm. I, I, I think I had a much more flat affect externally than I was feeling inside. Mm. Really throughout most of my games. Fair enough. Yeah, it was fun to watch you get Estonia at the last second, though. Yeah, so something I I hadn't realized about this game, I was the only one to get any of the $2,000 clues, uh, which helped me build a lead fairly early. But once we got done with the uh, rhyming terms starting with H category and had two categories left, I did not even ring in for the rest of the game. (laughs) I did not ring in in the reinstate songs category, and I did not ring in in the mammals category. Now, the mammals, I I knew the ones that got answered. Uh, Reese got all three of the top three. I I knew those answers, but he beat me to it. But uh, yeah, I'm a flat line for those last two categories. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I had not realized that. But yeah. I hadn't either until like until I watched it and I was like, I seem to remember seventeen six hundred being my being the score going into Final Jeopardy, and I'm already at seventeen six hundred. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, and as I watched, it's just like, oh, I just didn't play those categories. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. So speaking of that, going into Final Jeopardy, uh, I am at seventeen thousand six hundred. Christine is at nine thousand, and Reese is at twelve thousand four hundred. And we get the category 20th Century Novels. And the clue, I've Killed My Brother, is said near the end of this 1952 book with a biblical title and a plot echoing a biblical story. Uh, Christine wagered everything but $2, 8998 and she guessed What is Grapes of Wrath, uh, which I believe Alex says that's the right author but the wrong book. Reese wagered everything okay so so here's here's the thing is that he has a choice um he can try to hold steady and if you and christine miss it then he is the winner right or he can bet big to cover christine's all in Mm -hmm. and then if you miss it and christine gets it or christine misses it that he's the winner. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of the, the trade-off that he has to make. Yeah. 
not a bad wager in given that situation. It's not like it was a close second place with third way behind. Mm-hmm. J Archive calls this Stratton's dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're in this kind of situation where you can't cover the third place and and stay high enough to win a triple stumper. Uh, but he guess what is Cain and Abel? That is the biblical story, but mm-hmm. uh, not not the novel. So he loses everything. And got it correct with what is East of Eden. Yeah. And I made a cover bet, just like I did in every single game. Cover bet of a dollar over. So that put me up to 24,800. And one. Now, I've never read this book, but the... And I actually took a long time before I wrote it down, because 1952 felt so late to me for uh, for John Steinbeck. Right. But it got to the point where I was like... The only the only title that I know of that has any kind of relation to the Cain of Abel story, Cain and Abel story, is East of Eden. So, yeah, Gra- Grapes of Wrath was published in 1939. Right, that's right? why. Was, yeah, and of course, like authors are like human people who live through generally multiple decades. Well, um, unless there's some kind of child prodigy with it, with it tragic downfall yes but but yeah i think we, <laughs> we we associate authors often with with the decade with one specific decade or maybe two and so to say 1952 book sort of takes you out of what you think of as steinbeck's era for sure yeah i haven't read east of eden but i knew of it as a as a retelling of the of the and Abel story my um, mom the librarian was like what do you mean you've never read it? <laughs> and then proceeded to give me the whole synopsis of the story. So now I don't need to read it. So we're good. There we go. All right. You're all set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's uh, that's Monday. Yeah. So on Tuesday, we had the game from Tuesday, May 22, 2018. The contestants are Andrew Lai, a medical student from East Lansing, Michigan. Ermine Vermeij, a librarian from Tarzana, California. And Josh Hill, a network engineer from North Little Rock, Arkansas, whose four-day cash winnings total $102,530. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Illinois at 200, musical groups, naming my baby girl for grandpa, I read you loud and clear, you have to identify the novelist who wrote the words, it's chaos, and be kind. Um, we started with Hermine running the uh, musical groups category. Kudos to yeah, her for that. Yeah, she crushed it. Yeah. And Josh, then she flatlined <laughs> for yeah. a long time. Josh yeah. seems to like working that top row of clues, which is an unusual he, approach. Yeah, he, he seems to like work like horizontally across and then down and across and then down and across. Yeah. He likes to work from top to bottom like a... Like he's disassembling a brick wall or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting to watch it. Yeah, it was really, really strange. I've never seen anybody else play that way. Uh, but, I mean, clearly it worked for him because he won big in, like, every game that he won. Yeah. Uh, we got uh, an interesting interesting clue in Illinois at 200 at the $400 level. Completed in 1973, it was the world's tallest building until 1996. Uh, now, Josh rang in and said, what is Willis Tower? Which is what it's called now, but I didn't... I hope nobody, no Chicagoans got offended, because that is the Sears Tower. And always will be Sears Tower. 
no matter what anybody says and no matter what legal or actual factual things are, it is a Sears Tower. Yeah. Okay. Just um, Yeah. Don't you tell me, Willis. <laughs> That's how I feel about the Tappan Zee Bridge. Is it not the Tappan Zee Bridge? It's the Mario Cuomo Bridge now. Yeah, we're just going to move on from that. <laughs> it's the Tappan Zee. It's the Tappan Zee. Um, yeah. With all due respect uh, to Mario Cuomo, it's just always going to be the Tappan Zee Bridge. Sure. Sure, of they course. They even replaced yeah, it no. with a new bridge, but it's I'm still calling it the Tappan Zee. <laughs> the actual Tappan Zee Bridge like literally doesn't it's exist been, anymore. They, they um they like uh like it was a special event at the school. We couldn't they couldn't see it from the school, but they like put it on the TVs to watch the demolition of the original Tappan Zee Bridge. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a whole thing. And then and then at the thousand dollar clue in that category, uh, just again we've talked about this in recent weeks. If there's Chicago and Italian physicist, it's always Enrico Fermi. Always Enrico mm-hmm. Fermi. Always Enrico Fermi. Yeah. Yes. Right. I got that because of that conversation on this podcast. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So immediately after uh, his Willis slash Sears Tower get... Uh, Gaff. Josh, <laughs> Josh uncovers the Daily Double. It's at the $600 level. 13th pick. And uh, he makes it a true daily double with $1,200 to Ramin's 3000 that she got running that category and Andrew's 600 And the clue is, this official slogan of Illinois honors a man who moved there at age 21. And he correctly responds, what is the land of Lincoln? He brings a certain panache to his responses. Oh, yeah, because he uses like his that. hands, which is something oh, you yeah. don't see in Jeopardy contestants. Because usually we're so just like locked in and kind of nervous that mm-hmm. our hands are, our hands are kind of stuck wherever we had them but yeah he he has he has an easy way about him yes yeah i think that's it so at the end of the jeopardy round <laughs> josh is at 8400 and hermine and andrew are tied at 3800 and we get the double jeopardy categories questionable television science art and artists foreign former forts which I, my mouth hates saying gardening and end game with end and quotation marks you know in the foreign former forts category this clue didn't necessarily stick out to me but the, the correct response did uh, fort faithful on the silk road became almady once capital of this country very nice and Josh gets that that is Kazakhstan and I wonder I wonder if the uh, producers had they you know ostensibly they're choosing these as like big wins for our you know tournament of champions <laughs> contestants but i think that there are there are more subtle connections the for the choices that they've made yes i think i think if we go back through with a fine tooth comb we will find borat in all of the orifices <laughs> of these episodes <laughs> I, I feel like I've seen some other subtle connections, although they're not coming to me right now. Um, but yeah, I uh, noticed it's been a lot for Ed. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> Peter Pan also has come up multiple times. Yes. No, you're right. I like. I have seen. I I have also noticed things. I like. Huh. That was in another episode we talked about last week, or, the, uh, you know, things like that, which really just goes to show that like, Jeopardy topics do repeat. Yes, they do. Yeah. Josh impressed me with uh, his get at the $2,000 level of Endgame. 
Uh, it was in math you find the difference by subtracting the subtrahend from this, and he knew it was the minuend. I'm not sure if I ever learned what that was called, but if I did, I certainly did not remember it. <laughs> You've forgotten it since second grade or whenever we learned yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had to sub in math classes in various places, so I've had to remember that kind of stuff from time to time. So daily double number two, we find in the science category at the $1,200 level. Uh, it's the 22nd pick. Andrew uncovers it and wagers 4,000 of his 7,400. Uh, at that point, Josh is at 18,400 and her move is at 9,800. Whew. Those, nice those are some scores. The clue is a unit of atomic mass, a Dalton, is defined as one twelfth the mass of the 12 isotope of this element. And he correctly responds, what is carbon? Which is a good move. Uh, but I mean, personally, and I, and I know this isn't like a, obviously, like we've done this show long enough. Hopefully the listeners know this is not like a criticism or a personal like put down or anything. A wager of 4,000 at that point is the same as an all in with Josh so far ahead. And yeah. not too many clues left on the board. Just go all in. Yeah. Give yourself a better chance of winning. Mm-hmm. And if you get it wrong, you're basically out of it anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me just let me just sure. pause and say um, we were we were marveling at those scores and like looking at uh, the game rundown, they correctly answered 55 of the 60 questions on the two boards, and there were only three wrong answers altogether. Yeah. So this was a very strong game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's fun to watch. We get Daily Double number three in the Art and Artists category. Josh found it. It was at the $1,600 level. Pick number 24, so it was only a couple picks after the previous Daily Double. And where before he had gone all in... You know, granted it was 1200 in in single Jeopardy. Uh, here he wagers the minimum five, which is a smart move because <laughs> he does not feel confident and he's got a good lead. Uh, and he gets the clue. A category in the World Beard and Mustache Championships honors this 20th century artist's stash. Uh Josh does not know. He guesses who is Picasso, but that is Salvador Dali. 20th century art, I think, is not Josh's strongest suit. He has Oof. he has some strong suits. Oh, um, yeah, he does. Yeah. I think, I think art in general is not necessarily his thing. Because I'm thinking now of uh, his... The Tournament um, of Champions. Yeah, his Tournament of Champions Final game. Jeopardy. Final Jeopardy, where, where uh, he was uh they were supposed to come up with cubism salvador dali's mustache is a epic it's a whole thing yeah it's a mustache for the ages we had it as a uh, a visual question in our name that famous facial haired person round virtual pub quiz yesterday nice (laughs) yeah but smart to only wager five here as we head into final jeopardy um Josh is at twenty one thousand nine hundred ninety five, but it's uh, it's not a runaway. Hermine is at fourteen thousand six hundred. Andrew is at eleven thousand four hundred. Um, these are these are good scores, and we get the final Jeopardy category: famous Russians. And the clue is: in November eighteen thirty six, this writer got a letter naming him to the Most Serene Order of Cuckolds, 
In February 1837, he was dead. And Andrew has wagered everything he has and responds, who is Tolstoy? That Mm -hmm. is incorrect. Hermine has wagered 8,201. What's she doing there? She's trying to get above Andrew's double up. She's responded, who is Dostoevsky? Also incorrect. Uh, Josh, like Andrew, has responded, who was Tolstoy? He's wagered 7,206. What's he doing there? He's trying to get above Hermine's double up. Yeah, Um, that's a cover bet. Yeah, that's a cover bet. But he was at 95, which is why they Right, which is why it's tricky. Um, If he... Wait, so he misses and drops to... Oh! But he... He actually would lose, yeah. Well, he... Yeah, he... uh, he drops to 14,789, so still above where Hermine started at the end of Double Jeopardy, in, in a space where he can make a, make a cover bet and still be safe in a triple stumper. So he lands at 14,789 and is the winner. So the correct response here is Alexander Pushkin. Um, yes. yes. Uh, these uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, I believe, are both a little bit later. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't know anything about this most serene order of cuckolds story, and um, I'm not sure if I want to know. So, no, I mean, yeah, Alex informed us that he was fighting in a duel for his wife's honor, hmm. which cool. I think I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I got this because I believe you mentioned not too long ago that if Jeopardy is asking about a Russian author, it's probably Pushkin. Mm. Something like that. Something like that. I mean, I I got it um, because of Russian author and the year. Um, There are a few Russian authors they could be asking for, for, but those years pointed me to Pushkin. Yeah, I, I did not know the years for Pushkin, but I knew that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were both alive in the 1850s and later. So mm-hmm. the only one left for me was Pushkin, and I was like, Emily said that he comes up a lot. He I'm does. He comes Pushkin. up a lot. So now I know. Mm-hmm. Look at this podcast helping us on our couches. <laughs> yes. So on Wednesday, this is from Thursday, March 14th, 2019. And this is Lindsay Schultz Game 1. So unlike the other episodes where it showed, uh, it showed the contestants in the... Uh, number one position this is Lindsay as a challenger and we get the contestants kevin salat a product marketing manager from seattle washington Lindsay schultz a physician and healthcare analyst from pittsburgh pennsylvania and barton wong a senior trading associate from toronto ontario canada whose two-day cash winnings total fifty six thousand dollars barton was a strong player mm-hmm. like like real strong champion and we get the categories uh, i i had forgotten about this board or at least these categories winterfell high garden the wall river run king's landing and got mm-hmm. this was what? a fun themed board yes which in case in case any of the listeners are are, are i imagine in the statistical minority and not familiar with game of thrones <laughs> Um, those are all references to places in the Game of Thrones world. So the the categories were all Game of Thrones themed, but they were all, you know, 
other kinds of questions. It wasn't Game of Thrones questions. Yeah, there was one yeah. Game of Thrones question. Oh, was there? I question. It. Uh, it was in the GOT it. category, $600 level. Game of Thrones right. viewers await the final season and an attack by these alliterative invaders and their army of the undead, and that is the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. Lindsay got that one. Yeah, she did. So we get the first Daily Double in the River Run category at the $400 level as the fifth pick. Kevin finds it, and uh, with only 200 so far, he wagers 1,000. Lindsay has 1,200, and Barton has zero. He gets the clue in New York Times crossword puzzles. The clue for it has been Bard's River. And he correctly responds, what is Avon? That's right. Mm-hmm. At first, like, I saw that clue and my first, my, my gut response was Stratford. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's on, it's on Avon. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had at the thousand dollar level of the wall, we had comfortably numb, which was an mm-hmm. early quiz question, I blew yeah. on this podcast. So That's I got right. it on Jeopardy this time around, and uh, Kevin because got it. because you've spent time listening to Pink Floyd, right? Uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Good, yeah, Good. it's worthwhile. We do have a connection to my episode. So speaking of looking for things that you know connect, the four hundred dollar clue in High Garden. The flower Aquilegia saxamontana is also known as These Mountains Blue Columbine. And that is the Rockies. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lindsay is at 7,000. Barton's at 5,000. Kevin is at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Cinematic Oakland. That's my math or science thing. International Holidays and Observances. The play's last lines. They give you the last lines. You identify the play. On the move, and all bets are off. Each correct response will not contain the letters B E T in that order. I liked that. That was a that was a fun one. Yeah. On the on the first one of those, Kevin fell for the gimmick. The clue was this Greek letter gave us part of the word for all the letters that make up a, a language, and he said, "What is alphabet?" Which is yep. sort of the, the risk that whoever rings in first on that category takes, basically. Mm-hmm. That's incorrect. The answer is alpha. You can't include BET. Uh, we had the um, the comic book character who is in a rivalry for the affections of Archie Andrews. That is Veronica, as opposed to Betty. We had uh, the AMC TV series that introduced Mike Ehrmantraut, played by Jonathan Banks. Uh, that is Breaking Bad, because you can't say... Better Call Saul, so that rules it out for you. This character is in the French title of the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast. La Bette is off the table, so that's Belle. Lindsay got those last two, and Barton got the uh, Betty and Veronica one. Yep. Um, Barton did really well in the play's last lines category. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that is where we find the second Daily Double. Barton uncovered it. He widget 5,000 of his 7,000. He was closing in on Lindsay's lead. She was at 7,800, and Kevin was back at 3,200. He gets the clue, a musical. And then the quote, How many can I kill and still have one bullet left for me? Don't you touch him! Teodoro, Anton. And uh, Alex did just a spot-on Natalie Wood impression, Mm -hmm. which is in itself a criticism. And uh, Barton... Takes a moment, but he figures out that that is West Side Story. Mm-hmm. The final Daily Double comes up in the That's What My Math or Science Thing category at the $1,200 level. And Lindsay finds that one. Uh, she wagers 
5,500, uh, looking to take the lead away from Barton, who has 16,800. Kevin's at 3,600 at this point. This Heisenberg principle says some things, like energy and time, can't be me- accurately measured simultaneously. She responds, what is the theory of uncertainty? And Alex says, yes, the uncertainty principle. At that point, Barton sort of, his his curve kind of flattens. He, he doesn't ring in again for the rest of the round. And Lindsay goes on a bit of a run with yeah. Kevin also getting a few. But yeah, Lindsay goes on a tear. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, listen to these scores. Kevin in third place at 7,600. Barton in second place at 17,600. As a reminder, that's where I was in first place on my game. And Lindsay in first place at 28,100. That is mind-boggling. Yeah, She's huge. really good at this. Yeah. And they get the category State Capitals East of the Mississippi. And they get the clue, the last two letters of this city's name are the U.S. postal abbreviation for the state that it's the capital of. Kevin wagered everything, 7,600, and he put what is Albany, which is correct, New York being the last two letters. Mm-hmm. Barton also wagered everything. He's he was in that in that uh, dilemma position, mm-hmm. so not a bad bet. He also got what is Albany, and then Lindsay also got what is Albany, and she made a cover bet. So she wins with 35,201. Yeah, that's a that's a game. Uh, on Thursday, we get uh, the game from Thursday, October 18, 2018. Our contestants are Mark Johnson, a pastor and hospice chaplain from Rolla, Missouri. Jessica Cantrell, a museum development assistant from Adairsville, Georgia. And Alan Dunn, a software development manager from Johns Creek, Georgia, whose four-day cash winnings total 87202 Um, So we get the Jeopardy categories, AP Biology, The Goal of the Game, Unions Online, They Sing, They Act, Countries of the World, and the L You Don't Say. Each response will have a silent L. Although, given some of these straws, some of those L's came out. Yeah, and my pronunciation, like, yeah, I mean, we can talk about it right now. Uh, The $800 clue to fill the seams between planks to make watertight. I, I pronounce the L in that. I say caulk. Like, it's yeah. not it's not very strong, but I... There are other words that sound awfully similar that I want to make sure I'm not <laughs> confusing it with. Same. Like, are, I mean, are yeah. Same. Right? So, yep. I give a little bit of an L on that one. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, yeah, me too. I also have a hint of an L when I pronounce balm as in lip balm or there is a balm in Gilead. It's not I do like too. balm, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't say balm, but Yeah. Yeah, I also say balm. I just yeah. I just kind of lay my tongue into the into the word, you know. Yeah. That sounded way creepier than I intended to. <laughs> I apologize to you and to everybody else. <laughs> I, I'm all right. I'm all right. We had an interesting reversal oh, in, yep. in the goal of the game. And they gave you the object of a game and you had to uh, name the game. Uh, so, for example, at the $200 level, identify a person or thing within a score of inquiries. Alan got that one. It is 20 questions. At the $1,000 level, 
the clue was form a horizontal, vertical, or diagonal line of a quartet of your own colored discs. And Mark rang in and said, what is drop four? And was ruled incorrect. Alan got the rebound with connect four. That's what they were looking for. Then after the commercial break, they uh, corrected Mark's score. Um, they said drop four is another name for that game. And, uh, and he picked up 2,000, the 1,000 that he'd been docked and, and the 1,000 for the correct response. Yeah, pretty, big, yeah. pretty good feeling. Mm-hmm. We get the first daily double in the unions online category. Uh, Alan finds it and he wagers 2,000. He is at 3,200 right behind Jessica's 3,400 and right ahead of Mark's 2,800. So it's a pretty close game. He gets the clue AFGE.org belongs to the American Federation of these employees, more than 700,000 of them. And he knows that that is government employees. So he takes the lead. Yep. But only for a moment. Uh, Because on the following clue, the $1,000 clue, uh, an organization that I am a member of, uh, the clue is you can learn a lot at NEA.org, N-E-A being short for this. Uh, Alan rings in and guesses what is the National Educators Association, but Mark gets the rebound with National Education Association. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Alan is at 3,200, Jessica's at 4,000, and Mark has jumped out to a good lead at 8,200. Then we get the double Jeopardy categories, AP Biography, One Letter Responses, Americana, Fictional Writers, Traitorous Activity, and Mythological Homophones. And I was like, oh man, go, go to the mythology. And he, and Alan did. He did me a solid. I liked that category. Yeah. Um, and that's where we actually found the, uh, the second daily double. Coming off of the $1,200 clue, uh, which was sneaky Norse bad guy, or a hyphenated word for understated. I thought this was a clever clue. It's a Loki, yeah. Loki, or Loki. Jessica got that one correct, and so she uh, was the one to uncover daily double number two at the $1,600 level of that category. It's the fourth pick. She wagers 3000 of her 6000 Mark is at 8200 at that point, and Alan is at 3600 She gets the clue, a Roman food goddess, or another word for a TV show, and she correctly identifies what is series. Yeah. I thought that one was a little tricky, but that was good. It was a little tricky. Yeah, and then we get a, then we get the $2,000 clue. I just want to talk about it because I, I like this stuff. Although, I, I will... I want to call out the Jeopardy writers on this one, on the $2,000 clue. The clue is a deadly Hindu goddess or a deadly Colombian drug cartel. And uh, Mark gets in, and that's that's Kali. When you, when you title the category myth, mythological, you are implying that the the mythologies you are utilizing are widely accepted as... Myth. Mythological. Yeah. Mythological, meaning like no one really... No one holds them to be true. Hinduism is a major world religion. Yeah. 
and yes, if you want to be like academic about it, then you would say, well, every religion is really like mythology because it's all faith based and blah 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 blah. The stories are fantastical and in, in the way that all myths are, and they attempt to teach us lessons and whatever. But like, it's I, I it is to me at best ignorant to to use that terminology mm-hmm. for a current major world religion. That's a fair criticism. So, yeah, I seem to remember a similar uh, kerfuffle over. Uh, I can't remember the specifics, but there was a category name that similarly sort of used myth or folklore. Yeah, or something. it was. It um, was. Um, to... Yeah, it was the final Jeopardy on my uh, seventh win. Uh, mm. It was the the category was folklore, and the correct response was Buddha. Mm-hmm. It's like Buddhism is a major world religion. That's that's not folklore. That is, to some people, to a, a large number of people in the world, that is, like, truth. You know, like right. like a, 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 a factual story, or at least a thing that is more than just some, you know, some folktale. Yeah. Right? Anyway. We get the third Daily Devil in the one-letter responses category. Uh, Alan finds this one as well. He's at 8,800. Jessica's in a good lead at 13,400, and Mark is ahead of Alan at 9,400, so he's in third place. He wagers 4,000, and he gets the clue, Einstein used it to denote the speed of light. And he knows that that is C. We know E equals MC squared, but if you don't know what the letters stand for, E means energy, M is mass, and C is the speed of light because the speed of light is constant. So I go. might have. I I initially fell into the trap and said E, and then corrected myself to C, sitting on my couch at home. So yeah, gotta get those things straightened out. But Alan had it. Alan yep. had it cold. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jessica is in the lead, but only by two hundred. She's got seventeen thousand. Alan has sixteen thousand eight hundred, and Mark has nine thousand four hundred. The final Jeopardy category is characters in children's lit. And the clue is, this winged character from an early 20th century work is so named because she mends the pots and kettles. Mark has wagered zero, and guessed who is Holly Hobbit. Which is a thing, I think he should have put three uh, question marks as we talked about <laughs> last week to just show that, like, this is a wild guess. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I mean... It's- that's not it's not a thing, but like Holly Hobby is a thing and hobbits are a thing and, and it kinda of sounds kind of mendy, right? Yeah, and uh, children's story-ish. Yeah. I think you know, fine guess. And, you know, zero dollar wager, so it doesn't really matter, right? Like right. once you've wagered zero, like whatever. Um, yeah. You can put suck at Trebek, it won't matter. <laughs> We're three people who've never been in my kitchen. kitchen. Yeah. yeah, not a lot of people get that reference, but my dad <laughs> loves to say that. Alan has wagered every single dollar he has, which is strategically not the correct move, but it paid off for him because he wrote, who is Tinkerbell? Potentially, he would. You, from his position, you might want to make a small wager to cover an all-in from third place, but the big thing is to, uh, if, if you miss, you want to let first place drop below you. Uh, so Jessica has wagered 16,601, but she has responded, who is Fairy Godmother, which fits with winged character and children's literature, but 
It's not who we're looking for. So Tinkerbell is the correct answer there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Alan is the winner. Yeah. And that's that's the second time Peter Pan's come up? I think, I think so. Yep. So, that's and the second Peter Pan Final Jeopardy. That's this. right, because it was Never Neverland. Yeah. 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 I finally remembered this fact that Tinkerbell, like her name actually matters as to mm-hmm. like her origin. I have learned this fact at least a dozen times, and finally, finally, I saw this and I was like, I wonder what that could be. Oh, I know this! Oh, man. Getting yeah. old sucks. It takes forever to learn things. Yeah. On Friday, we got the show from Tuesday, February 12th, 2019. And this is Eric R. Backus, game number two. We get the contestants Ellen Clark, a sales support specialist from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Rob Williams, a renewable energy manager from Portland, Oregon. And Eric R. Backus, an attorney and government relations professional from Round Rock, Texas who at that point in one day had won $48,001. How is that not the game they picked? Yeah, that's Um, a pretty big win. We get the Jeopardy round categories, Peaceful Guns, quoted in the OED, Countries of the World, Same Day, Bugs Bunny cartoons, and Animal Fakers. Well, to me, the whole highlight of the game is... I knew it. I knew you were (laughs) going to talk about this. It's the $600 level of... Bugs Bunny cartoons, uh, usually chasing a moving bird, this character pursues bugs in To Hair as Human. That is Wiley Coyote, the final yes. the final Jeopardy response from our game. Yes, which connects to some game last week, too, where Wiley Coyote came up. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. lots of connections. It's all connected. They chose the two that had Wiley Coyote because they want to let us know that uh, they listen to the podcast. Yeah. We get it. We, like we know you listen. We appreciate the sh- the uh, like the subtle hints or whatever. But you could just I don't know, reach out to us or whatever. Mm-hmm. Invite us back on the show. We want to be back on the show. I will gladly wear a mask, <laughs> and stay. And you can move the podium six feet apart. It's mm-hmm. totally fine. I thought peaceful guns was kind of a fun category. Um, it was all guns that are not used as weapons. So we had um, a radar gun. We had a deck gun or deluge gun, which is used to fight fires. We had a torque gun used to remove lug nuts. Uh, we had a t-shirt cannon. Which, we're playing kind of fast and loose with the notion of peaceful now. Have you ever gotten <laughs> hit by one of those t-shirts? I, I haven't. Do they hurt? I mean, if you're close enough. Okay. And uh, and a grease gun. So I don't know. I thought that was a that was a that I wouldn't have thought to put those five things together. But that was fun. We find the daily double as the twenty seventh pick. So almost uh, at the end of the round, it is in quoted in the OED, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, at the six hundred dollar level. Eric finds it and wagers 3,000 of his 6,000. He is tied with Rob for first place with Ellen trailing at 2,600. And the clue is, the OED loves this other reference work founded in the UK, quoting it more than 14,500 times. And he correctly responds, what is the Encyclopedia Britannica? I read a whole book about the history of the OED. No, not about, about about the writing of the OED, but... 
I'm not sure much stuck with me. It was an audiobook. Oh. Which. Writing a dictionary audio. must have been fascinating. I believe the book was called The Professor and the Madman. Let me. Yeah, The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester, uh, focusing on a major contributor to the OED who also was imprisoned at the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. Yes. The premise of the book is about all I remember, to be honest. Gotcha. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Eric is at 10,000, Rob at 6,000, and Ellen at 2,600, and we get the categories Famous Names and in quotation marks, Top 10 Tunes, Hip to be Square, Miracle Meds, Classic Adventure Novels, and Final Jeopardy, which is confusing. It it is confusing, but it was... I thought it was a well-made category. It was just questions about, like, last things, or Mm -hmm. terms that have to do with finality. Yeah. Uh, It was well-constructed. We had um, the argument each side's lawyer makes as a final statement to a jury that's closing. We had um, the Belgian locale, which can mean a downfall, especially from the French perspective. That's Waterloo. Eric had a miss that turned into a triple... Stumper at the $1,600 level from the Latin for nothing comes this word, meaning to reduce something to nothing. Um, he guessed what is eliminate. Uh, the correct response is annihilate. Nihil is, uh, is nothing in Latin. Where we get nihilism. Yep. And other, other terms like that. So the uh, second daily double shows up in the famous names category. Eric located this one he's out to a good lead at this point it's pick number nine uh he's at 13,200 rob is at 8,800 and ellen's at 5,800 eric wagers 3,300 and he gets the clue despite the objections of her family this english woman went to germany for medical training in 1850 uh and he gets it correct that is florence nightingale we get the third daily double as the 19th pick of the round at the $2,000 level of classic adventure novels. Ellen finds it and wagers 3,000 of her 5,800. Eric is way out in the lead at this point at 18,900 and Rob has 8,800. She gets the clue. Raphael Sabatini wrote a novel about this sanguine captain, a doctor turned pirate. And she correctly infers that sanguine means that Something related to blood has to show up in the name. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's trying to find what that is exactly. And she ends up saying, who is blue blood? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, the correct response there is Captain Blood. So she drops down some. Yeah, which if if you don't know that Captain Blood is a a thing, I think think that would be too simple for you to guess. Yeah. Right? Because they gave you Captain in the clue. And Mm -hmm. Sanguine is just like, oh, blood. But yeah. I, if I didn't know that Captain Blood was, like, a character, I I would have added something to it like she did. I'd have been like, oh, I can't just be Captain Blood. That That's too easy. Bloodbeard. Yeah, Bloodbeard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he cut himself shaving. But he has a beard, so maybe that joke doesn't work. Yeah. He was shaving yes. his head. I, I did not know that Captain Blood was a thing. So, oh. yeah. I missed that one right along with her. And Alec, Alec says something about Errol Flynn. After she misses. Yes, Errol Flynn, uh, that's one of his big roles, was Captain Blood. 
so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Eric has a lot game, 24,900. Rob is at 10,400, and Alan is at 6,400. They get the category Islands, and the clue, 650 miles off the U.S. It was the site of a 1609 shipwreck of colonists bound for Jamestown that may have inspired the Tempest. They all get it right. It's Bermuda. Alan wagered 4,001 to get ahead of Rob. Rob wagered 2,401 to get ahead of Alan. And Eric wagered 4,000 because that's the most he could risk without risking his lock game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he ends up at 28,900. And this clue, this is one of those instances like, to think of the facts, I understand them separately, but to put them next to each other is, it like blows my mind. Like Shakespeare writing at the time of like American colonies, you know, like Mm -hmm. I know the years are the same in my brain. But Shakespeare is always just so old, so much farther back in history to me. And, you know, American history is all very recent, even though it clearly isn't. You know, it's 400 years and whatever. But putting those two side by side, it it, it, it messes with me. You, you haven't seen that great American classic film, Shakespeare in Love, starring everyone's favorite health expert, Gwyneth Paltrow? Uh, no, I haven't. She's not a health expert. She's not a health expert. No, no. I have not, actually. Yeah. Uh, because because I have seen Saving Private Ryan and I don't need to see any other films from that year because it should have mm. won Best Picture. There we go. Fair enough. Taking Fair a stand. Enough. All right. I'm not sure I've seen Saving Private Ryan. Very good. Very intense first, uh, you know, very intense beginning. Well, anyway, at the end of Shakespeare's in, Shakespeare in Love, um, spoiler warning, presumably if you haven't seen Shakespeare in Love now in 2020, you probably won't, but uh, at the end... Shakespeare's love interest uh, sails off to the colony of Virginia. Too bad Shakespeare um. wasn't a real person. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, so that's the week. <laughs> yep, that is the week. This week, as in previous weeks, uh, this is our time when we might normally plug our Patreon page. Um, we don't feel quite right doing that. Uh, at this time. Um, If you're choosing where to put your dollars, uh, we want to encourage you to um, support organizations working for social justice and in particular racial justice in this time. Um, If you're looking for a place to connect, communityjusticeexchange.org can help you find um, an organization that is local to you. You can also look at blacklivesmatter.com to connect with an organization local to you that is doing important work in the service of racial justice. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're moving on to the deep dive. Emily, what do you think I'm talking about? Here's where you get it in one yet again. All right. So as a clarifying question, Mm -hmm. are you heading toward your own game or are you heading towards somebody else's game? I am not doing my own game. All right. Only because I have recently talked about military history, and I, I very strongly considered talking about Pershing, but I chose not to. All right. Um, oh, well, you just said not military history. I, I thought maybe the Battle of Thermopylae might be something you'd be... Ooh. No, I would just direct you to the, the uh, classic piece of cinema called 300. <laughs> <For that>. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
truly, truly a historically accurate representation if there ever was one. It's um, like right? they were there. Was it a triple stumper? No, it was not. In that case, you aren't surprising us by doing doing a literature topic, are you? Nope. Okay. All right. Then I'm not going to guess Tinkerbell. What about Florence Nightingale? Uh, it is not Florence Nightingale, no. All right. No, uh, it is not a triple stumper. It is, however, a Miss Daily Double. Oh, oh, drat. Okay. I forgot to think about Miss Daily Doubles as an option when I... Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, so what are we doing? We are talking about uh, the game from Tuesday, Josh Hill. Okay. Uh, the Double Jeopardy Round Art and Artists category. Oh, $1, Salvador $1, Dali. Level. Yeah. Oh, I looked at that and then I was like, nah, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> nice. The clue, the clue was a category in the world beard and mustache championships honors this 20th century artist's stash. And that's Salvador Dali. Neat. Uh yeah, I was first introduced to Dali as in the summer before high school. I showed up to my first day of marching band, and my band director unveiled the concept for our show that year, and it was the life of Salvador Dali. I didn't know anything, so we I just like learned about this artist that I'd never heard of. But looking back on it now, I'm like, that's a really weird concept. For, like, a marching that's band a, that show. Is, that's a weird concept for a marching band show. How was that implemented, exactly? It was some some sort of, like, a modernist music. Uh, a lot of, a lot of like, not necessarily atonal, but um, sort of, like, post-tonal sort of things. And a lot of, a lot of kind of brutalism and uh, a lot of drum, drum sounds and the music. And then visually, uh, it was so, it was so weird. We had like moving props of like that were like painted, you know, melting clocks and all that on one side. And then they flipped around at the end and like we like moved them together to make like a big face of of Dolly, like his face. (laughs) It was very weird. weird. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that was my introduction to Salvador Dolly. But uh, yeah, I realized probably not a lot of people know anything about him other than he had a mustache and he was a surrealist painter. And I, doing this, I learned things again that I had either not learned before or had forgotten. So we're going to talk about him a little bit. We're going to talk about his life, talk about his works, and then we'll do a quiz. So here we go. Uh, That sounds great. Salvador Domingo Felipe Jacinto Dali y Domenech, first Marquess of Dali de Pubol was born uh, May 11th, 1904, in the town of Figueres, which is in the Emporter region of Spain, close to the French border. It's in Catalonia. Dali's older brother, who was had also been named Salvador, was born in 1901, but died of gastroenteritis nine months before, uh, in August of 1903, so they just recycled the name, which is cool. Uh, also, his father was named Salvador, Salvador Rafael Aneseto Dali Cusi. Uh, he was a middle-class lawyer and notary, and a, uh, a very devout atheist and Catalan federalist. Hmm. Uh, he was a pretty strict, kind of no-nonsense dude. Uh, Salvador Dali's mother, Felipa, was much more kind-hearted, much, I guess, softer is a way to describe her, not in, like, weak, but just in soft countenance. Uh, and she was the one who really encouraged her son's artistic interests. 
Salvador Dali was uh, constantly haunted by the idea of his dead brother. Um, he depicted his dead brother in like the 1963 portrait of my dead brother, but also wrote about him a lot in his writings and, and represented him in other works of art. And he also had a sister, Anna Maria, who was three years younger, uh, who I'll talk about a little bit more later about her uh, book that she wrote called Dali as Seen by His Sister. He attended the municipal drawing school at Figueres uh, beginning in 1916. And that year he also discovered modern painting when the family took a trip uh, with the family of a local artist named Ramon Pichot. The following year, Dali's father organized an exhibition of his charcoal drawings in their home. And then in 1918, he had his first public exhibition at the Municipal Theater in Figueres. In 1921, Dali's mother died of uterine cancer. So Dali was 16 at the time, and he later said that that was the greatest blow he had experienced in his life. Mm -hmm. After her death, Dali's father married her sister. But uh, Salvador did not resent this, apparently, because he also really, (laughs) really liked his aunt, too. So Hmm. it all worked out, I guess. In 1922, Dali moved to the student's residence in Madrid and studied at the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de San Fernando, which was the Fine Arts Academy. And he was already very tall and skinny, and people already noticed him as rather eccentric and kind of a dandy. Hmm. Which stuck with him for his whole life. <laughs> uh, there he made friends with a number of uh, different artists, Pepin Bayo, Luis Buñuel, and uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, and other uh, artists associated with the avant-garde group Ultra. During this time, Dali's paintings, uh, he began experimenting with cub- cubism. However, there were no cubists in Madrid then, so he got a lot of attention in Madrid because the, the Uh, He was really the only person pursuing it there. Through his association with the Ultra Group, he became more acquainted with other avant-garde movements like Dada and Futurism. And uh, one of his early works, the watercolor Night Walking Dreams from 1922, shows off that influence. He also began reading Freud and Lautremont, who had a uh, profound influence on his work. In May 1925, Dali exhibited 11 works, in a group exhibition held by the newly formed Iberian Society of Artists in Madrid. Seven of them were Cubists and four in a more realist style, and uh, he gained, garnered some praise there. And then in November he of 1925, he had a solo exhibition. That was his first. In his early works, we see the influence of not only these avant-garde styles, but also his kind of command of the classical like technique. One thing that you can sort of tell if you see a Dali painting you you can just kind of tell it's Dali obviously for a lot of the like bizarre surrealism but also his, his like command of line and the clarity of the form in what he paints uh, was it was very unique to him at that time in 1926 Dali made his first trip to Paris where he met Picasso who he adored and looked up to a lot uh, Picasso had already heard about Dali from another Cubist named Juan Miro, who was a fellow Catalan. Dali, uh, the the works that he developed over the next few years were clearly and strongly influenced by Picasso and Miro. He left the Royal Academy in 1926, shortly before his final exams, uh, but his 
his paintings showed a clear command of his skill at that time. So it wasn't really necessary for him to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was in 1926 at at that particular like moment in time that he painted his uh, The Basket of Bread, which is a depiction of four pieces of bread with butter sitting in a basket on a table. That will come up later <laughs> in his life. Uh, later in 1926, he held an, uh, another exhibit and showed 23 paintings and seven drawings where the cubism was separate from the objective works. Then from 1927 on, his uh, his work became increasingly more surreal, such as his Honey is Sweeter Than Blood and Gadget in Hand. These were kind of mixes between cubism and surrealism. Influenced by his increased reading of Freud, Dali began to introduce more and more uh, se- sexually suggestive imagery and symbolism into his work. For instance, his 1928 work, Dialogue on the Beach, subtitled Unsatisfied Desires, uh, was rejected from the Barcelona Autumn Salon because it was, quote, not fit to be exhibited in any gallery habitually visited by the numerous public, little prepared for certain surprises. Uh, if you look at that painting, it's it's very stark, very simple, but it pretty clearly depicts genitalia. <laughs> Just kind of like hanging out there. Like, devoid of body, just kind of hanging out there. (laughs) But actually, the rejection and the resulting scandal was widely covered in the Barcelona press and uh, led to a uh, a Madrid periodical, a weekly weekly periodical, uh, to publish an an interview with him. And so that really raised his profile. In the mid-1920s, very important, Dali began growing a nice, neatly trimmed mustache, and in the decades that followed, he cultivated it into the more flamboyant one, similar to the 17th century Spanish master painter Diego Velázquez. Hmm. And that is how we get to know his mustache. So, in 1929, Dali collaborated with the surrealist film director Luis Buñuel, who, remember, he had met uh, at the Academy. Mm -hmm. On the short film Un Chien Andalou, or An Andalusian Dog, he contributed to helping the, write the script, and he also claimed to have played a role in the filming, but that's not substantiated. Uh, and then in August of 1929, Dali met his lifelong muse and future wife, Gala, who was born Elena Ivanova Diakonova. She was a Russian immigrant, 10 years older than him. And at the time was married to the surrealist poet, Paul Eluard. Um, however, soon after they met, the two of them began having an affair. And by the end of 1929, uh, Gala and Eluard had divorced. A little bit about their relationship. Uh, they began living together in 1929. Uh, they married in 1934 and then remarried in 58 in a Catholic ceremony. And in 34, it was a civil ceremony. And uh, due to his purported phobia of female genitalia, Dali was said to have been a virgin when they met. <laughs> um, around that time, Gala was found to have uterine fibroids, so she had a hysterectomy, and so they were obviously not going to have kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> In the 1930s, Dali began to sign his paintings with his and her name as like reference to her being his muse. Um, mm. She also acted as his agent and uh, helped helped guide him through the business side of his of his art. 
Uh, Gala had a strong libido and had a lot of had a lot of extramarital affairs, including <laughs> some of them with her former husband Paul Elward. Uh, but apparently, yes. Dolly encouraged that because he was a right. practitioner of Kandalism, which is apparently I learned this today. <laughs> the uh, practice of exposing one's partner or images of one's partner to other people for their voy- voyeuristic pleasure. So now we know that. Right. And then uh, later on in life in 1968, he bought her the castle of Pubal, where uh, she would spend every summer for, uh, for the rest of her life. And he agreed not to visit there without getting advance permission from her in writing. <laughs> They had a weird relationship, (laughs) needless to say. Um, This was in 1929, and at this point, uh, his really strong, very clearly surrealist work start to come out, like The First Days of Spring, The Great Masturbator, and The Lugubrious Game. Uh, These were all very clearly like expressions of sexual anxiety and unconscious desires. The... uh, quote-unquote founder of the surrealist movement, Andre Breton, described Dolly's new works as the most hallucinatory that has been produced up to now. It was in that year that Dolly was able to officially join the surrealist group in the Montparnasse quarter of Paris. And this period of his work was later to be called the paranoic critical period mm. or the paranoia critical method that he used to access the, the subconscious. Uh, meanwhile, Dali's relationship with his father was breaking down. Uh, Don Salvador, Dali Cusi, did not like that his son was an artist in general. He also strongly disapproved of his romance with Gala, and he thought the Surrealists were a bad influence on Salvador's morals. When Dali's painting Sacred Heart of Jesus Christ was uh, exhibited in Paris... It had an inscription that said, Sometimes I spit for fun on my mother's portrait. At which point, his father demanded that uh, he recant publicly. Dully refused, and uh, his father told him that he would be disinherited. Huh. That's something. Yeah. Following summer, Dully and Gala rented a small fisherman's cabin uh, in Port Lilgat. And uh, later on, he bought the cabin and other ones around it, eventually building what became his Villa by the Sea. Eventually, before his father's death, Dully's father would relent and, and like, they, they sort of, kind of reconciled. Uh, so in 1931, Dully painted possibly his most well-known work, The Persistence of Memory, which is uh, the painting of the melting clocks or melting pocket watches. Mm-hmm. Uh, often interpreted to mean that the assumption that time is rigid or deterministic is false. Uh, in 1931, he had two important exhibitions at the Pierre Cole Gallery, uh, which included the persistence of memory and a bunch of the a bunch of other uh, recent works, including the hypnagogic clock and clock based on the decomposition of bodies. So clocks were very prominent for him at this time. Like I said, Gala and Dali were married in 1934 in a civil ceremony. Dolly's first visit to the United States was in 1934 and attracted widespread press coverage. He delivered three lectures on surrealism at the MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, and other venues during mm-hmm. which he told his audience this just, just fantastic quote, The only difference between me and a madman is that I am not mad. <laughs> which, 
which is of course okay, yeah which is of course demonstrated by this next uh next anecdote uh the heiress caress crosby who was the inventor of the brassiere organized a farewell fancy dress ball for Dali on the 18th of July, 1935. And at that ball, Dali wore a glass case on his chest containing a brassiere and Gala dressed as a woman giving birth through her head. So there you go. (laughs) Not mad at all. Um, That sounds very stable. Very stable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So... During this time, and as, as time progressed, the majority of the Surrealist group, as really most uh, artists, had become increasingly associated with leftist politics, Marxism, communism, that sort of thing. Uh, Dali maintained an ambiguous position. He didn't really make clear his opinions on politics, didn't want to connect it to his art. Andre Breton who had been a supporter of Dali before, accused Dali of defending the new and irrational in the Hitler phenomenon, but Dali quickly rejected that, saying, I'm ni- I am Hitlerian neither in fact nor intention. Uh, and he insisted that surrealism could exist as an apolitical context, although he refused to explicitly denounce fascism. Hmm. Uh, he was almost expelled from the surrealist, surrealist group at that time, uh, to which Dali re- retorted, the difference between the surrealists and me is that I am a surrealist. <laughs> <laughs> He really, really knew how to, like, you know, build bridges. Uh, yeah. In 1936, he took part in the London International uh, Surrealist Exposition, um, and he delivered a lecture wearing a deep diving suit and helmet, carrying a billiard cue, and leading a pair of Russian wolfhounds. So okay. there we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, apparently it was well received, I guess. On December 14th uh, of 1936, Dali was featured on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, he was also commissioned by some affluent admirers uh, during this time that he created the Metamorphosis of Narcissus and uh, the Lobster Telephone and May West Lips Sofa, which you should check those out. They are exactly as they sound. Uh, Dali was in London when the civ- Spanish Civil War broke out in July of 1936. And soon after, he learned that his friend uh, Lorca had been executed by the Nationalists. He included frequent references to his uh, friend in his art and writings for the rest of his life. However, he did not take a public stand for or against the Republic or the Nationalists during that war. Yeah. Uh, He continued making works, including the uh, sculpture or three-dimensional work called Rainy Taxi, which is a taxi with two mannequins in it continually being soaked by rain from within. Mm-hmm. So there you go. He also met Sigmund Freud in 1938, and uh, Freud commented that this boy looks like a fanatic. Dolly was delighted to hear that. <laughs> in 1939's New York's World Fair, uh, he debu- debuted his Dream of Venus Surrealist Pavilion, which had a ton of stuff. Bizarre sculptures, statues, mermaids, and live nude models in costumes made of fresh seafood. <laughs> uh, however, Dolly was angered by changes to his designs, railing against mediocrities who thought that a woman with the tail of a fish is possible, a woman with the head of a fish impossible. <laughs> hmm. I, I just, the things that I, I have come across. 
<laughs> uh, after, soon after that, Franco was victorious in the Spanish Civil War in April thir- 1939. And after that, Dali wrote to his friend Luis Buñuel, denouncing socialism and Marxism and praising Catholicism and the Falange. The, the Falange being a uh, being the fascist political party in mm-hmm. in Spain. At which point Buñuel stopped talking to him. <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in May of 1939, the Surrealist magazine Minotaur, uh, Andre Breton announced Dali's expulsion from the Surrealist group, claiming that Dali had espoused race war and that the over-refinement of paranoic critical method was a repudiation of sur- Surrealist automatism. Uh, and so at that point, a lot of Dali's contacts and uh, uh, friends in the artistic world were cut off. And they say cancel culture is new. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In 19, September of 1939, World War II be- broke out. Uh, the Dali's were in France, but they escaped through Portugal uh, to the United States. And they remained in the United States for the next eight years. Uh, in 1942... Dali's autobiography, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, was published in New York and London, uh, and it was uh, mixed reviews. Time Magazine's reviewer loved it. George Orwell hated it. It it depended on who you were. (laughs) And it was also during this time that Dali began to move away from surrealism, partially as a what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a condemnation of his being kicked out of the group. But also mm-hmm. as he began to uh, change in his views on the world a little bit, or his, uh, more specifically, his views towards spirituality. So we began to see his, uh, his surrealism take on less of a, like, uh, bizarre bent and more representative of real things and, and less, less um, distorted proportions. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in 1945, he showed off his new basket of bread. Which, before, in 1926, the basket of bread had four pieces of bread. Now, this one just has the heel. Uh, And it is subtitled, Basket of Bread, Rather Death Than Shame. So this is a representation of his his progress through the Surrealism movement. Uh, In 1946, Dully worked with Walt Disney on an unfinished animated film called Destino, which has been released... Uh, I think in 2003, it's 17 minutes long and very weird. In 1948, Dali and Gala went back to Spain, back to their house in Port Ligat. Dali gave his public support to the Francoist regime, uh, which continued to make people upset. Pablo Picasso refused to mention Dali's name or acknowledge his existence for the rest of his life. Uh, Breton continued to fight against the inclusion of Dali's works in exhibitions uh, throughout Europe and the world, um, constantly denouncing him as the ex-apologist of Hitler and friend of Franco. Uh, in 1949, Dali's sister, Anna Maria, published her book, Salvador Dali, Seen by His Sister, uh, which made him angry because there were passages that he considered derogatory toward his wife, and so uh, Salvador stopped talking to the rest of his family at that point. And when his father died in 1950, although they had sort of reconciled, he still hadn't been written back into the will. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he was left with mostly nothing of his own or nothing from the family, only what was his own. 
Uh, during this time, Dolly moved toward uh, embracing Catholicism and became more and more uh, devoutly Catholic. And you can see this clearly in the iconography in his paintings. In 1949, he painted uh, a study called The Madonna of Port Legat, which is still very clearly Dali, uh, but it also is very clearly a Madonna. And he showed it to Pope Pius XII during an audience that he arranged with him. Uh, this was the precursor to the phase that Dali called his nuclear mysticism, which he considered a fusion of Einsteinian physics, classicism, and Catholic mysticism. So like that, uh, also the Christ of St. John on the cross and the disintegration of the persistence of memory, Dali sought to synthesize Christian iconography with images of material disintegration inspired by nuclear physics. Uh, he had a keen interest in science and mathematics, and that continued into things like the inclusion of rhinoceros horn shapes, which he considered divine geometry because it grows in a logarithmic spiral, um, and also inclusion of the tesseract or a four-dimensional cube in other works. He liked optical, optical illusions and uh, using negative space, and, and the, you see these things in his later works as well. In 1960, he began work on the theater museum in his hometown of Figueres. It was a uh, his largest single project and a main focus of his energy through 1974 when it opened. In 1968, he bought the castle in Pubo for Gala, and from 1971, she would retreat there. In 1980, Dali's health deteriorated, and he was treated for depression, drug addiction, and Parkinson's-like symptoms. Gala died on June 10th, 1982, at the age of 87, and after that, Dali moved from Figueres to the castle in Pubo. In 1982, King Juan Carlos bestowed the title of Marquess de Dali de Pubol on Dali. And then in 1983, Dali's supposedly his last painting, The Swallow's Tale, was revealed. Um, however, a lot of people have questioned whether he actually was able to paint it with such precision, given the severe tre tremor that was happening in his arms. And then in 84, his depression worsened and he refused food and, and he just kind of spiraled for a long time. There are allegations that Dali was forced by his guardians to sign blank canvases that could later, later be used in forgeries. Uh, it's also alleged that he knowingly sold otherwise blank lithograph paper uh, possibly over 50,000 times. <laughs> um, so later, yeah, art dealers are wary of late late works attributed to Dali. Hmm. In, this, in November of 1988, he entered, the, he entered a hospital with heart failure. Uh, the king, Juan Carlos, came to talk to him. You know, he was a big fan. And then on January 23rd, 1989, listening to his favorite record of Tristan and Isolde, Dali died hmm. of heart failure at the age of 84, and he is buried uh, below the stage of his theater museum in Figueres which is across the street from the church where he was baptized, had his first communion and his funeral, and only 450 meters from the house he was born in. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. Huh. He was also exhumed in 2017 uh, because there was a, a, uh, a paternity suit. However, after DNA testing conclusively proved that Dali was not the father of the claimant, uh, she had to pay for the cost of the exhumation. So mm -hmm. that's his life. A little bit about the symbolism uh, in his works. Uh, anytime there is food uh, in his works was commonly associated with beauty and sex. Uh, he was 
obsessed with the image of a female praying mantis eating its mate after copulation. And he considered bread the elementary basis of continuity and sacred subsistence. Uh, egg, mm-hmm. you might see eggs in his works, uh, referring to prenatal and intrauterine uh, hope and love and things like that. Uh, also, sea urchins, that's from his childhood, as well as uh, melting things that came... <laughs> he said the, the idea for the clocks melting came when he was contemplating camembert cheese. I thought you'd enjoy that. I do enjoy that. Yeah. As far as animals, like I mentioned, the rhinoceros horn is is common in his works uh, because of the logarithmic spiral that he enjoyed. Uh, he also used it as an obvious phallic symbol in Young Virgin Auto-Sodomized by the Horns of Her Own Chastity, which is a whole topic that I'm not going to go into. That painting is weird, and the purpose yeah. behind it is also weird. Uh, other animals like rotting donkeys and ants... Rotting donkeys, obviously death and decay. Ants uh, often refer to sexual desire in his paintings as well. Uh, And then obviously science. Uh, He likes images of atomic particles and uh, watches with time, strands of DNA after the 1950s. Uh, He was very interested in that. I also mentioned some of the films that he worked on. Uh, He also designed scenery for Federico Lorca's uh, romantic play Mariana Pineda. Like the, I mentioned architecture, working on his house in Port Lilgot and also the Theater Museum in Figueres. Uh, he wrote his autobiography. He also wrote a novel called Hidden Faces in 1944, uh, which was not as popular. Hmm. And obviously we talked about politics and religion. So yeah, that's that's Salvador Dali. Um, t- I, I threw out a lot of names of works. Go take a look at them. <laughs> pretty, pretty unique. Yeah, I, uh, I actually... I- I pulled up uh, a couple of them on on Google as you were as you were talking to kind of try and follow along visually and like how uh whew. and there there are some like especially much later in life that don't really don't look anything like his at all um I can't remember the name of it um but there's one that I think that's like Mary and Jesus just like in the clouds and it just looks like a it it looks like almost like a uh like a baroque painting like his, it, it does not have a surrealist like element to it at all. It's very, huh. it's very weird. His, his like his, his path in, yeah. in artistry. But again, that goes back to like his command of, of real painting technique. Like I actually, I used a Dolly image uh, on the on the cover of our bulletin a few weeks ago, not really knowing. Huh. Uh, you know, like I was surprised to see real, like Dolly pop up on my on my art search. Yeah. Um, you know, but but there he was. It was a painting of the Ascension, and it's oh yeah, that's uh, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, like looking toward presumably Jesus, right? Like the bottoms of his feet as he as he ascends into heaven. And I was like, oh well, that's cool. I've never seen anything anything like that before. Um, yeah, but it's it's cool to have context for it. Yeah. Um, so quiz time. Quiz time. I hope you're ready. Um. Yeah, I think I'm ready. Okay, let's do this. Question one. I hope this question doesn't make you so scared. But the indigenous people of El Salvador often referred to the city of Santa Ana as Siwatewakan, which translates as city of what? And I'll have you know, this is like nothing to do with Salvador Dali. The only connection is that it's El Salvador. Oh, okay. Um... I don't know. I feel like so scared was a reference to something that I should have gotten 
I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be. It, it sounds like you're trying to do like Blair Witch Project, but I'm like City of, City of Blair, City of Project, City of Witches. Like, I'm going with City of Witches. There we go. And, I don't think that's right. And you're but. right. It's City of Witches. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what that was. Good. I'm glad you All got right. it. Having, having rejected City of Blair and, and City of Projects. Yeah. There we go. No, no it, it is right. City of Projects or a lot of uh, a lot of housing, a lot of government housing there. Um, yeah. Good job. Yeah, the only connection right. there was was Salvador. Um, so, good. Uh, question two. This famous country singer claims that, rather than money, her father paid the doctor that delivered her with a bag of oatmeal. Who knows if he had to work nine to five for it, though? Oh, that must be Dolly Parton. That is Dolly Parton, yes. I took a Dolly Parton-themed spinning class today. What? <laughs> Virtually. <laughs> I, I can tell you that is not the sentence I expected to hear. <laughs> oh, that's not, awesome. Not in person. Nobody go to spinning classes in person. Y'all shouldn't be breathing on each other. But Yeah, really but heavily yes. and flinging your sweat everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. No, it's Dolly Parton. I just wanted to have a Salvador and a Dolly question. In that, there, so. That's awesome. Cool. All yeah, right. Good. Now, these ones are more actually related. So here we go. <laughs> question three. Gala is consistently referred to as Dolly's muse. We recently le- learned through Learned League that Memnosine, memory incarnate, was the mother of the muses in ancient Greek mythology. Name any of those nine muses. I only have to name one? Yes. All right. Uh, Calliope was a muse. I think. Yeah, I think. You're correct, yes. Calliope yeah. was the muse of epic poetry. Yeah. Do you know any of the others? I think the question named Calliope and Cleo, and... It does. I feel like, I feel like there's, there's another one kicking around in my brain somewhere. That's why I, on, I only asked for one. <laughs> Want to throw out another one or two? Sure, I was going to ask for more than one, but I was like, man, I don't even know, like... It's probably not super common knowledge to even be able to pull one. So yeah, Calliope is the muse of epic poetry. Cleo is the muse of history. Erato is the uh, muse of love poetry. Uh, Euterpe is the muse of music, song, and lyric poetry. Melpomene, or Melpomene is the muse of tragedy. Polyhymnia is the muse of hymns and sacred music. Oh, I think I knew of polyhymnia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Terpsichor or terpsichory, depending on if you're going to do Greek, um, is the uh, muse of dance. Thalia is the muse of comedy. And Urania Mm. is the muse of astronomy. And also apparently Christian poetry in later times, which is just funny to me. Hmm. Okay. Thalia is the other one that, that rang a bell when you said it. Gotcha. I mean, all of them sound vaguely familiar, but sure. Talia, I, I, had a, I had a connection with. Sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you're, uh, you're three for three for so far. Yeah. 30 points. Question four. Uh, Picasso notably cut ties with Dali over his support for the Francoist regime. Picasso's most notable work condemning the actions of the nationalists was a depiction of the bombing of what northern Spanish town by the Nazi Condor Legion? Oh, if this isn't Guernica, then I don't know what, what it is. So I'm going to go with Guernica. It is Guernica. Yes. Uh, that that's the town that was bombed. It wasn't even bombed by the Spanish. Like, it, yeah, man. Just mm-hmm. every t- every time I learn more about the Spanish Civil War, I'm like, man, ah, ah, uh, mm, yeah. 
I mean, plenty of other things in history were also worth that. Ugh, but that that one too. Okay, so you're yeah. four for four. Good job. Uh, and nice. listeners, if you've never looked at, if you've never seen uh, Guernica, check it out. Very important painting. All right, question five. The commander of the Condor Legion was Wolfram von Richthofen. His fourth cousin Manfred was also a notable German pilot, known commonly by what nickname? Hmm. I'm worried about like switching who was on which side because I'm so bad at military stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, was this the Red Baron? This was the Red Baron. Yes. Yay. Manfred von Richthofen was the Red Baron. As I did a little more research into into Guernica, I saw that it was Wolfram von Richthofen who commanded the Condor Legion. I was like, there's no way. There's no way that it's like the same family, but it totally is. Mm-hmm. So cool, neat. you or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Neat is not necess- <laughs> that feels like underselling that's, it. Yeah, oof, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but no, that's 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 interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. So you're perfect. Fifty for fifty, fifty, fifty for fifty, right now. Uh, and the I, I, the final for the category, I'm going to say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. All right. Um, I'm gonna go all in. <gasps> oh, oh, oh. We have it here today, folks. Potentially 100 points. Never been done before. Final question. Sigmund Freud is touted as one of the main influences on the development of surrealism as an artistic movement. Some of his most important works include The Psychopathology of Everyday Life from 1901, Three Essays on the Theory of Sexuality from 1905, and Introduction to Psychoanalysis from 1917. However, arguably his most famous book was published in 1900, and bears what title? As a pastor, you may have gone to Daniel or Joseph before Freud. Hmm. Oh, the interpretation of dreams. You got it. Yeah. Ooh, I'm getting chills. Ooh. A <laughs> hundred points. I did the thing. Oh, well, we can end the podcast now because it'll never be topped. So it's been good. Um... Have a good life. I'll see uh, see you around. <laughs> I guess. Oh, uh, this was this was very. Fun. <laughs> I'm this glad. Like not as good as being on Jeopardy, <laughs> but but pretty thrilling. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Ooh. Well, thank you. Thank you for a great deep dive and a great quiz. You are welcome. And uh, listeners, hopefully, you did as well. I mean, you couldn't have done better. So. <laughs> Hopefully you did at least as well or close on that quiz. And hope- maybe they knew extra muses. Maybe, ah. they, maybe they were able to pull Ooh, yeah. them. Or yeah, maybe they rattled all of them off. And yeah, but uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. And Emily, thank you for chatting with me. Oh, thank you. Pleasure as always. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it would help us if you could leave our rating or review as well. Our Patreon, if you want to check it out, is Potent Potables. Um, but as we said earlier in the podcast, uh, there are other things that are more important right now if you're choosing where to donate. But it doesn't cost you anything to tell your friends about our podcast. Um, they might be into Jeopardy. They might want to hear about Jeopardy. Trivia. History. That's right. What books I recommend. Yeah, they, they probably are very interested in what books you recommend. They'd probably be as disturbed as I am to hear about how messed up Salvador Dali oh, is. dude. <laughs> yeah yeah uh you can tell your friends to find us uh on facebook at potent potables on twitter at potent potables one our email address is potent at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. 
So until next week, when we will be back with the last week of reruns before the re-air of the Tournament of Champions, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.